Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Can you believe that it's two days away? I was thinking, what in the world happened to December? I don't know if it was that snow weekend or if it was our grand opening or what it was, but am I the only one that like December evaporated on? Some of you are sitting there like, I see a couple of you sitting out there like, no, I got this. Like, we're good. Um, two days, it's Christmas, just FYI. And uh, that means that tomorrow is Christmas Eve. We're having special Christmas Eve services. They're not going to be identical to this one. A couple of people asked that. Some people asked, uh, are you having church on Sunday? Yep, we are, uh, in case you're wondering. And uh, don't ever have to ask that question. Just assume we are. We're going to do this for, it's not just a grand opening. We're going to continue doing this every week, <laughs> making a big deal about Jesus, okay? And uh, we're glad that you're gathered with us today. And uh, hopefully uh, you can make it out to the Christmas Eve services tomorrow. The services are at 3.30, 5 o'clock. I'm going to be preaching a short gospel message. We're going to be singing a bunch of Christmas songs having a good time, we'll have a photo booth, and just, it's going to be great. So we hope you can make it out here. Uh, bring a friend, bring a neighbor, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and maybe their eternity will be transformed. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. We'll jump into today's message. Father, thank you uh, so much for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Uh, I pray, God, that you'd change us. I pray that as we look into your truth, that you would look into our souls, that you would show us the things in our lives that are offensive to you, that you'd show us the things in our lives that are, are causing us to miss out on the plan that you have for us. God, we believe that you've got intentions for us, that your commandments weren't to hold us from having fun, but you've got a plan for us to be free and to know you and to love you. And God, I pray that we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that you would put these words on our hearts and put them in our minds and help us to teach them to our kids. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we get started today, let me just ask you this question as we are just two days away from Christmas. What are you seeking this Christmas? Everybody's seeking different things, and we can have same experiences and seek different things. I asked you last week uh, how many of you decorate for Christmas, and it was like 95, 98% of you decorated for Christmas. Let me ask you today, how many of you, as part of your Christmas celebration, watch Christmas movies? Watch some kind of Christmas movie. It could be a Hallmark movie. It could be the Christmas story. It could be some people are protesting that. Um, you know, Scrooge, Grinch, whatever movies that you watch, you watch some of the movies. Have you thought about, in all those movies, people are seeking something? But the characters will be seeking different things. And so just take National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I think that's a classic now. It's kind of like the Christmas story, right? It's on all the time. And uh, think about that Clark is waiting for his Christmas bonus. He's got dreams of making memories. He's going to build this pool, make memories for his family. And he gets the Jelly of the Month Club. Talk about not being appreciated by your company. I'm sorry if you got Jelly of the Month Club this year. I didn't write the movie. It's just what happens. And then so he's seeking memories for his family. Then Cousin Eddie goes out and seeks his boss. He's going to show him. He's a jerk. Different people, same experience, seeking different things. Or Christmas with the Cranks, I don't know if that's quite a classic, it's a pretty bad movie, actually. If you, if you watch the movie, Tim Allen, though, is seeking throughout the entire movie to forget the stage of life that he's at. He doesn't want to think about the fact that his daughter's not going to be home for Christmas. Or Kevin McAllister, I'm sure that you all know that name, Home Alone, it's just like it's flipping through TNT, Lifetime, like whatever channels are on, it's just constantly on. Some of you got the whole DVD set, What Incompetent Parents, it happens every year, seriously, there's like five or six of those things. But what's he, he's just seeking to survive from, speak of incompetent, some of the most incompetent criminals you've ever met, right? Harry and Marv, he's just seeking survival. What about this one? Maybe this is a little bit more rare movie, Jingle All the Way with the Governor, Arnold, have you seen that? How many have seen that one? Yeah, seen that? Raise your hand, make a little moan. Okay, you don't want to admit it. I get it. Confession is good for the soul. (laughs) 
He's trying to buy the hot toy that year. Does anybody remember what that toy is? Turbo Man. Turbo Man. That's right. We got some fans in the back row. How about that? What are you seeking this Christmas? See, different people, we can have the same experience. You can all come to the same Christmas Eve service tomorrow and let's have a different experience, even though we're at the same event. I was thinking about one of the stories that we tell at our house. And if you've been at our church for some time, maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but is that when my daughter was about three or four years old, she's 13 now, we had gone to this thing down in Apex, this church puts on called A Journey to Bethlehem. It's pretty awesome. If you've got little kids, I suggest you go check it out. They do a great job of basically walking you through their church campus, but while they're doing it, telling you the journey that Mary and Joseph went on to get Jesus to Bethlehem. And then you see it ends, it culminates at the nativity scene. I remember going through it and, and you get there and, and as somebody who teaches the Bible all the time and every year I'm preaching you know, the same verses, the same Christmas story, I'm thinking, what is your interpretation of how this would look? Oh, this is how you think the wise men would dress. Okay, I got it. Bathrobes from Walmart and a couple from Macy's. Got it. Yep, see that? That's how you think that would go. And, and then you get into, you know, the next second. I remember going and they actually had a Roman centurion. And, you know, the Roman centurion costumes always have like big muscles on them. Like the six pack is like pressed on there. Like if I hold it on long enough, maybe it'll actually look like that. This dude was actually buff. And I was like, whoa, it's a little intimidating. Like you got a real Roman centurion in here. And there was this one section where you walk through what was like the Jerusalem marketplace. They give you a little drachma, and you're supposed to buy stuff, and they've got, you know, little candies and, and candles and all kinds of different stuff. And my kids bought goldfish, not like the ones that swim around in a jar, like the snack goldfish, like Cheez-Its. I'm probably going to find out in like three years there's weed killer in it or something, but they buy that. And I'm like, oh, you thought they had Cheez-Its in the Bible, and they were shaped like fish. I, oh, because there's fish in Galilee. Ah, oh, I got it. It's like biblical. Okay, now I'm seeing it. And then we get to the culmination of the whole deal. We're in the auditorium, and they're doing the nativity scene. And this narrator from the church gets up and he's telling the good news about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. And Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are there. And I look up and I'm like, I know him, Joseph. I know that guy. And Mary, that's his wife, Mary. And they just had a baby. That's probably baby Jesus. But then I look up on the stage and my daughter Ella's up there. And I'm like, I, I, that didn't go, we didn't come to any rehearsals. This isn't supposed to happen. I know the Christmas story. Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Not Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Ella. That's not how that works. And so I look over at my wife, she's got one of her other kids, and she's looking at me like, you better do something. And I grow up on the stage, I grab her, I pull her down, I'm like, what are you doing up there? She says, I wanted to see Jesus. I love him. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just here for the story. Like, I just want to make memories for my family, and you're seeking Jesus. You think about the Christmas story, how many people are seeking Jesus in the Christmas story? The wise men travel like 900 miles to see Jesus. The shepherds, they leave their flocks and they go and they seek Jesus. Even Herod, for bad reasons, but he's seeking Jesus. And you keep going through the Gospels and you come to guys like Nicodemus who comes at night and he's seeking Jesus. And you think about how easy it would be for us to talk about the need to seek Jesus this Christmas. But let me ask you this question. What is Jesus seeking for you this Christmas? In this series called God on Mission, we've been talking about that Jesus came. Why did he come? He came to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, seek and save the lost. Well, what is he seeking for the lost? And we've seen there are, there's more than one answer to that question. He's seeking to be your king, we saw in Matthew chapter 2. We saw last week that he's coming to call you and to cleanse you and to commission you. And today we're going to see one of the things, one of the things he's seeking, and maybe it's the thing he's seeking for you this Christmas, is he's seeking our freedom Jesus came seeking your freedom. What do you need to be set free from? 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. We're going backwards. Tomorrow we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We were in Luke chapter 5 last week. What's going on in Luke chapter 4, it's interesting. Uh, The way that Luke writes his gospel, he skips a a whole big time section of Jesus' earthly ministry. The things that you read about in John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 aren't in the book of Luke at all. Him turning water into wine, the woman at the well, uh, the temple situation, like all the stuff that happens in that period, he just like skips over all that. He goes right from Jesus' baptism, temptation, into his teaching. And we get some of the most extended teaching we get of Jesus here in one of the synagogues, and it's, it's the oldest record of any kind of service in a synagogue that, we ha- that historians have, not just in the Bible, that historians even have. And so we see what worship is like in a synagogue, but here's what you need to remember about this as we go to read this passage. This is Jesus' hometown synagogue. So the men and women that are in this this synagogue, this church experience, they taught Jesus the Bible. They were with him when he was in the nursery. So think about that as we read this passage. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, verse 16, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so he regularly would go to synagogue on Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he blends in there also Isaiah chapter 58, which probably means that Luke is summarizing all that he read from the prophet Isaiah. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, some of your translations say freedom, to the captives. And the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty or freedom those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is once every 50 years when debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Now he wasn't just done because he he read the passage. You would stand to read God's word. You'd sit down to preach the sermon. He's about to preach the sermon. He sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21 And Luke just gives us a summary of the sermon. Jesus didn't preach one-second sermons, but here's the summary. He began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we'll just pause right there. We'll go through verse 30 today, but we'll pause right there. Right now, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus, a lot of people had preached Isaiah chapter 61 before Jesus. Isaiah chapter 61, talking about the Messiah coming, talking about how he's going to set captives free, all the transformation he's going to do, the good news he's going to preach. But Jesus, there's an emphasis here in the Greek too that the first word today, he's emphasizing today, today, this day, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus is proclaiming he is the Messiah. He's not there just to proclaim your freedom. He's there to actually purchase your freedom through what he did on the cross as your Messiah. And it's today is the day of freedom. So the question for us has to be, what did he come to set us free from? What do we have to be set free from? And we see several things in this passage of Scripture. And the first one that we're talking about is this, that Jesus came to set you free from spiritual facades. And that's our first point, for those of you who like to take notes. Jesus came to set you free from your spiritual facades. A facade is a superficial appearance. It's the outward stuff, like the facade on a, on a store, the outward appearance of a house. And the reason why I chose the word facade, I could have said that Jesus came to set you free from your proud pretending. I could have said that Jesus came to set us free from our spiritual pretenses. I could have said that Jesus came to set us free from hypocrisy. But a lot of us in our minds, when we hear that, we think of blatant hypocrisy. We think of the guy who's, you know, preaching against adultery and he's cheating on his wife. And the guy at your office that walks around talking about integrity and he's stealing money from the company. 
It's the, it's the things that where it's like you say something and you do the opposite. That's not what we're talking about here because that's not what was happening in the synagogue in Nazareth. What we're talking about here is people that are so deceived, they deceive themselves and they don't even realize the sin that's in their life because they're so busy putting up these false pretenses around them so that Jesus can never actually get to their hearts. And so what are yours? We all have them. And if you don't see them, then ask God to open your eyes today as we walk through this passage of Scripture because they're there. And you see it in the response of these people. First of all, see who Jesus is preaching to. Did you notice? It says in in Isaiah 61, he came to proclaim good news, but it's not for everybody. Did you notice that? Like we talk about tomorrow, not next week. Wow, I really got to get this message ready. Tomorrow, uh, it's good news for all mankind. But here Jesus clarifies it's not everybody receives the message of Jesus, right? Like a lot more people reject Jesus than receive Jesus. And so it's not good news for everybody. He says here, it's good news to the, did you, did you see it? Verse 18. It's good news to who? It's good news to the poor. He's anointing me to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, what does that mean? Well, if it means materially poor, that's bad news for basically everybody in this room, just so you know. Now, here's the problem with that. Almost all of you think that you're not rich. We're all rich, biblically speaking, just so you know. But in a wealthy society, what happens is if you make, you know, $25,000 a year, you think, I'm not rich. The people who make $50,000 a year, those people are rich. And the people who make $50,000 a year, they go, I'm not rich. And the people who make 75, and the people who make 75, and the people who make 100, it just keeps going, just so you know. And if you make 25, you're like, people who make 100 think that they're not rich. And it sounds ridiculous to you. But let me tell you what biblical rich is. You're rich biblically if you know where your next meal's coming from. So you've got food in your pantry, in your refrigerator. I'm not talking about you haven't decided whether or not you're going to go to, you know, Brick's Pizza or Chai's Asian Bistro. I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I don't know where my next food's coming from, Red Robin. I have no idea. You can purchase your next meal. That means you're rich. If you have more clothes than what you're currently wearing on your body, you are biblically rich. And so if he just means materially poor people, now it's true, materially poor people oftentimes more receptive to the gospel message than rich people because rich people, just read the Bible. There's some tough words for rich people. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to have eternal life. That's interesting because in that passage of Scripture, Jesus called a rich guy to come follow him and he won't because he's too rich. But then he says it's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man to go to heaven. But then in Luke chapter 19, that's Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 19, there's a rich man. He says, salvation has come to your house today. His name's Zacchaeus. God does the impossible. But what has to happen is you have to see your spiritual poverty. It's not about material wealth. In fact, the word that's used here for poor, it's the same Greek word that's used in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor is being talked about here are the people that will actually receive. This is good news for those who, are, who realize their spiritual need, that realize they, can't, they don't have anything to commend themselves before God. They don't bring anything to the table. That we are desperately in need of a Savior that realize their sin. And so he, he says these words. He reads these words. He starts to preach this message. And we stop reading in verse 21. But, but look at what happens next. Because what we see about the people in this synagogue is these people really like a Jesus who will do things for them but they're fearful of a Jesus who wants to do things in them. That reveals their pretenses. They love a Jesus who will work out. The, like, why don't you purchase my salvation? Why don't you deal with my family? Make me have a better family. Why don't you help me be a better father? Why don't you make me a more disciplined person? But 
to actually transform my heart, I don't want anything to do with that. That's scary. Look at how we know this. It says, all spoke well of him. So he preaches this message. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. Can't you just hear the church ladies? That boy can preach. I remember when he was in the nursery. Like, can't you just imagine like what the talk was like there at this church? That, that he's reading my mail. Have you ever heard that one before? I've been told that before. You're like, you've been reading my mail, pastor? I'm like, I'm not a weirdo. Just preaching the Bible. Saying all this good stuff about Jesus preaching. All spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, and this is negative, by the way, is not this Joseph's son? Like some guy was like, didn't that guy build me a table? And he said to them, doubtless, and so Jesus starts preaching to them, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, that ministry that Luke skimmed over, do here in our hometown as well. You're the Messiah? Prove it. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you. And he tells these stories that would be so incredibly offensive to the synagogue. You've got to put yourself into their seat and realize this is all Jews. They think Gentiles are basically dogs. And what he's referring to here, and you can read these in 1st and 2nd Kings, you can read these stories. What he's referring to here is a low point in Israel's history. Spiritually speaking, they're apostate, they've rejected God, they're doing their own thing, they're worshiping idols, and, and then he's comparing them to those people. He says, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over, over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Jewish widows, because they would reject him, because the Israelites rejected and killed the prophets, and he's saying, you're no better. But only to Zarephath, the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. What he implies here is that these Gentiles were more worthy of ministry than Israel, than the Jews were. This is offensive. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, when they heard these things. And all the synagogue, were, they were filled with wrath. Now, verse 28 is a lot different than verse 22. All spoke well of him. Verse 28, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up. So typically the way that a synagogue service went was that they would pray some prayers. They'd say the Shema, which is Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And then there'd be a reading from the law. Then there'd be a reading from the prophets. Jesus is the one who read from the prophets. Then there'd be a sermon. Then there'd be a benediction or a prayer. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to. This service started awesome. It's ending really poorly. Watch. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Their plan was to stone him to death. They want to see him do miracles. Here's the miracle that we read past in this story. But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> How does a whole church of people want to kill one guy they get him out to this cliff, and then he walks away. He, it, says, it doesn't say that he vanished, he vaporized, he trans, his glory was so glorious they couldn't see. It says, passing through their midst. I try and picture this, like what in the world? Jesus must have like some nunchuck skills. And block, just walking through, he just walks by, he's like Jason Bourne with a magazine. Just walks by everybody. How in the world is he? We don't have any idea how he got away here. But he walks right past them. And they're desiring to kill him. How is it they go from verse 22 to verse 28? Why is it that all spoke, all spoke well of him in verse 22, and then verse 28, they're filled with wrath and they want to kill him? Here's why. Because he pierced through their pretenses. 
He got to their actual spiritual condition. These are the type of people, they would sit there in Nazareth and be like, we're at synagogue, we're Jews. It'd be the equivalent of saying today, I go to church, I'm a member of a church. I, serve, I give to my church, I serve at my church, and I do, the, I do all this stuff. He's going, what about your heart? And what you see and with Jesus sharing these offensive stories is that Jesus cares more about your heart than he does about your opinion of him. He's not trying to win popularity contests. You see, he's constantly trying to pierce through people's pretenses, trying to get past the facades that we all the time put on. He says things to people like, you whitewash tombs. On the outside, you clean yourself up. You're like dead bones inside. He says, you brood of vipers. That's not a biker gang, by the way, brood of vipers. It'd be a good name for one, but it's not. He's being offensive to the, intentionally offensive because he's not trying to get popularity. He's trying to get to their hearts. He's seeking their hearts, and he knows they're trapped in a spiritual facade. As long as they're trapped in a spiritual facade, he's not going to be able to do the work in them. They're afraid of him doing the work in them. They, they want him just to do a work for We're looking for the Messiah so we don't have to pay so many taxes. We're looking for the Messiah so that we're not under Roman oppression, not so that we can be redeemed from our sin. And Jesus is going, I'm coming after what really matters. I'm coming after your heart. For many of us, it's, it's kind of like at our house, I've got up here, this is what we refer to at my house as the spaghetti pot. And uh, when my wife gets this out, it's not the most glamorous dish ever, as you can see. Uh, when my wife gets this out, everybody in our house is happy. <laughs> Which that's like a miracle, okay? We've got six people in our house, and there is not, I, don't, I think this is the only meal that all six people get excited about at my house. My wife's like, hey, we're making egg rolls or it's going to be, you know, whatever else it is. It's like somebody, it's like weeping and, oh, I've got to fall down on the ground. Like, why are you doing this to me? You're torturing me. But when she makes spaghetti, everybody's pumped. Like, we can smell it. It's come through the, the pot there. Another interesting thing that happens at my house, I don't know if you have small children, if this is just universally true, or maybe it's just a problem with my kids that are especially gifted sinners. I don't know. But out in my backyard, there's all kinds of random stuff that does not belong in a backyard. Is that anybody? I see some heads bobbing. That's good. All right. It makes me feel better about me at least a little bit. There'll be spoons out in the backyard. There'll be toys out in the backyard. There'll be towels out in the back. I'll be like, I can find a towel. There are towels out of the playset in my backyard. And so what I did uh, yesterday is I went out through my backyard and I, I found some things. Um, and we're just going to put them in this pot here just as I go through. Actual things that were in my backyard. This is a goldfish bag, ironically. I already planned on saying that in the message. Yogurt container, because why would you bring it in and throw it away when you could just leave it out in the backyard? There it is. Uh, you wonder why you don't have any socks. Yeah, these were actually in my backyard. Nerf dart from the last game that we had out in the backyard. Leaves. Oh, we've got dogs too, and so there's some packages they leave in the backyard. And then if you ever see kids, kids play you know that they make stew, right? So I went to the little creek. It's been raining a lot behind our house, and, and it's, uh, it's kind of poured a little bit of the creek water in there. And kids' minds are funny. They think that if you mix something up, it automatically, like, magically makes it good. So let's just imagine that I find the spaghetti pot out in the backyard, and they've been making their stew, right? They got it all mixed up in there. And then I come inside, and I'm like, Shanna, it's been a rough day. We need spaghetti can you make spaghetti? She's like, sure, I'll make spaghetti. And I clean up the outside of this pot. I get it all ready. But I leave the dog packages and the socks and the yogurt container. And I'm just like, just dump the sauce in there. We'll be good. It's quick. We got to do this tonight. You going to eat the spaghetti if you come over? 
It's interesting. Jesus says this at another place in the Bible when he's getting past some false pretenses. It's in Matthew chapter 23. It'll be on the screen. Woe to you, most righteous guys of the day. That's the way that the people of that time would have heard this. You're hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. That's the kind of sin that he's going after. You blind, righteous guys. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. I deal with your heart. The other stuff takes care of itself. You're still trying to clean up the facade. You won't let me get to your heart. And I thought, what are our spiritual facades here in Raleigh? Because certainly there's blatant hypocrisy that happens. People that say one thing and they do the opposite thing. And certainly there's people that think that they don't, they don't really need Jesus to get to their hearts. I think that if, if Jesus were going to speak to our hearts today and then that's where we're at and we don't think that we're poor, we don't think we need Jesus, do you know what he'd say? I think he'd say the same thing he says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17 to the church at Laodicea. He says, you say, I am rich. I've arrived is basically what it says. I don't need a thing. And Jesus says, you're poor, blind, and naked. You just don't see it. You're the king with no clothes on. You don't, you're not self-aware. So what are, what are our pretenses? And we could go through and talk about different ones. I was reading a book this week, though, and it was talking about the temptations of Jesus, which comes right before this passage. And I thought, how interesting that the, the things that Jesus was battling in his temptations are the very things that I think oftentimes here in Raleigh and Cary and, and you know, there's the Triangle area, Wake Forest, that are the pretenses that we have. And think about his first temptation. The first temptation says that if you are the son of God, threatening his identity, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to perform for me. Do something. Think about the pretense of performance that oftentimes we wear. Isn't it interesting that our doing things for Jesus can be the very thing that keeps us from Jesus? Look at all the stuff I do at work, at home. I'm such a great husband. I, I changed the light bulb this week. Come on. Give me some applause. I serve in Sunday school, and I give money, and I set up, and I pick up trash, and nobody knows it, and I'm just waiting for my crown in heaven, and it's all of our do. It's, our perform- it's the pretense of performance. I think about the next one. He says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all, these, all the authority and all the glory and all the kingdoms will be yours, Jesus. How many people in the triangle area, their identity is defined by what they possess? Whether it's the clothes they wear, the gadgets they have, and we're using our possessions to keep people at a distance. You're defined by your possessions. It's who you are. And what the reality is, you don't want anybody to get into your heart. And so there's the pretense of possessions. Or or what about the last one? And you know, he wasn't just tempted three times. He was tempted for 40 days, the passage says. But we get three of them. The third one says, throw yourself down from here. Throw yourself down for the prove, show everybody who you are. Test God. God will show up. If you're God's son, again, threatening his identity. If you're God's son, then, then God's going to rescue you. Put God to the test. And for us, public opinion, perception, what everybody thinks about us. Think about the pretenses that we put on, the facades that we put on. And so sometimes we naturally think of this blatant hypocrisy that, that, that we pretend like we love Jesus, but our real escape is drugs or alcohol or porn or whatever thing. And that's like the obvious stuff. And we miss, it's like this church in Nazareth. We're like, Jesus is awesome. Oh, wait, he wants to mess with my heart? Uh-uh. I don't want anything to do with him because we like a Jesus that will do things for us. We're afraid of a Jesus who wants to do a work in us. 
The challenge here, it's interesting. If you look at, a, if you look at the temptations, but then you go back a couple verses, whether it's in Luke or you go to Matthew, it says baptism. Do you know what's interesting on his baptism? Is that the heavens open up and God the Father speaks about his son. Do you know what he says about his son? He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But you know what's interesting that that happens at the baptism? Do you know what that means? Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Nobody knows who he is. He doesn't possess anything. He hasn't even opened a blind eye, walked on water, much less gone to the cross. God the Father's going, I don't love you because of your performance. I don't love you because of your possessions. I don't love you because other people love you. I love you because you're my son. If we, if we are going to be freed from the spiritual facades of life, we must, you must understand it begins at the very base level of knowing God loves you, not because of what you do, not because of what you possess, not because of what other people think about you. He just loves you. That gives you the freedom to then be who he created you to be. But he's got to get to your heart. Are you free from your spiritual facades? The other thing that we see here is that he frees us from from spiritual captivity. Jesus came to set you free from captivity. Go back to verse 18. Really, the whole sermon revolves around what he said in Isaiah chapter 61. This is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. This is what I'm seeking, to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives. And the recovery of sight to the blind, we'll come back to that. And to set the liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed. And so here he he came to set us free from captivity. There's two problems with this, though. The first one is that if you read about Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read the whole, all the Gospels, read the whole thing. I told you, if you read just Luke, you'll miss some of the stuff John has. If you read just John, you'll miss some of the stuff Luke has. It's good to read all of it. But if you read all of it, not one time do you see Jesus setting someone free from prison. Now, we just sang... He split the sea so we could walk right through it. Really? What does that mean? What does that even mean to you? Let me think about that for a moment. Second problem is this. We live in America. Hashtag America, right? Like we got land of the free, home of the brave. What, is it? what do you mean set me free from captivity? Like what do you even think of when I say the word captivity? Think about like a lion that was out in the wild and now we put it in a cage and so it's captive. It's like trapped in this place. You think of slaves. You know, every, every week we give money to uh, women at risk international because there's more slaves in the world today than ever before. Sex slaves and labor slaves and people being held in bondage against their will. And you probably think, but that's not me. So what, what in the world? The, the application's hard. Where does it say it in the Bible? What's it talking about here? But what's really interesting is that the word for release, when it talks about freedom here, every other place in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which was also written by Luke, That word means forgiveness. He's talking about being held captive by sin. What is sin? Sin is our rebellion against God. It's when we do our own thing. It's when we think we know better than God. Our sin can be the false pretenses in our life. Our sin can be our performance for Jesus, as ironic as that sounds. Our sin can be our grasping for these possessions. Our sin can be our striving for the opinions of other people. The very things that we think we're doing for God are the very things that he came and he died for. And let me tell you something, Christian. And this might sound like self-evident truth. You don't even have to say it out loud. But I think because of the way that oftentimes we behave or the pressures that we feel to behave, sometimes because 
I'm trying to be a good example to our neighbor. Like, there's good reason. But let me tell you this. Christians still sin. You ever had a, a non-Christian say, I'm not going to church because there's hypocrites in the church. You know what? Here's what I would challenge you to say back to them next time if you'll be this bold. Say, no, it's not hypocrites in the church. They're just sinners in the church. You should come. You'll fit right in. It'll be great. <laughs> but here's the, the thing is the, the Christian is an admitted sinner, admitted failure. But what happens is that sometimes we, it's like, well, that was all dealt with. When I trusted Jesus as my Savior, that was all dealt with at the cross, so now I don't ever do it again. So I couldn't be a slave to sin. There, it's true that you're not under the power of sin any longer, that that's been broken at the cross, but you can still live like you're a slave to sin. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. And Jesus says this in John chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. First John says that if we claim that we don't have any sin, that we're a liar, we deceive ourselves. Jesus came to set us free from the captivity of sin. That's the power that rules and reigns over us. And the reality is that, that we all sin. No one had to teach you how to sin, right? I, I'm, I, was, I know when I was growing up, I was a really good sinner. And no one had to show me. I don't mean like a moral sinner. I mean like I just kind of was perfecting my craft, like sinning all the time. And I remember just thinking about tomorrow being Christmas Eve. As I was getting ready for the Christmas Eve service and thinking about the message that I preached to you all, I read some of the old ones that I preached. And I read an old story that I told one time, and if you were here that Christmas Eve, you, you, maybe you heard it, and it was about a, a year, and I won't tell you all the details, but uh, where my mom had hid some Christmas presents on me, my mom and dad were divorced, and she was over at my dad's house, and I went looking for the Christmas presents. And I told the story about how I found the Christmas, I was setting up the gospel, talking about our sin, how I found the Christmas presents, and how I couldn't contain the excitement of what I was going to get, and I wasn't very good at hiding it. And he, but what I didn't tell you as a church is what happened that night to my family. My kids were in the service, and I hadn't thought much about that. And so the next year, I was tucking one of my kids in, and she said to me, Dad, you and Mom are really good at hiding the presents. Where are they at? And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, well, last year, you were telling the story about how when you were a kid, you went looking for the presents. So I figured as a kid, I should probably go looking for my presents. And I'm like, I was not trying to teach you how to be a better sinner. And if you brought your kids to that service, I'm sorry. Sorry for any damage I've caused in your family. It was unintentional. I wasn't trying to make my kids sin more, not trying to make your kids sin more. But she was doing it. She's, and she actually thought, like, this is what kids are supposed to do because what you did, Dad. <laughs> no one has to teach us how to sin, do they? We all, it's natural that we sin. It's part of our sin nature. But what happened at the cross is that Jesus defeated the power of sin in our lives. But the problem, the problem is, is that many of us start believing things that aren't true because sin promises things it can't deliver on. In fact, if you look at all the tempt any temptation you face, I promise you that Jesus actually delivers the thing that the sin's promising, just a different way. And so what happens is, you've heard me teach, if you've been at our church long enough about repentance, lots of times, I've told you what repentance is. Repentance is you're going one direction, stop, and turn back to God. Here's the problem with that for many of us. The problem is, and this is stuff that you don't usually say in church, and most of us won't say out loud, but you've got to examine your heart and ask yourself, this is true for you, that every time there's repentance, it results in a loss and a gain. We lose our sin, we gain intimacy with Christ. But here's the honesty moment for you. Many of us, if we're honest, aren't sure that's a good deal. If repentance always results in me losing my sin, which sometimes I think is more valuable, and gaining intimacy with Christ, I'm not sure if that's better. 
That's why we don't want to really, I'll feel bad about my sin. I'll have remorse over my sin. I'll wish I didn't do my sin. But I won't repent, turn away from sin with intention to never go back and turn towards God because I'm not convinced that God is worth that. And so what I I don't know that I've ever shared with you before is the word repentance. It's actually made up of two Greek words, metanoieo. Meta is just a prefix. Noieo has to do with your mind. Meta means a change. There's a transformation. What has to happen is we actually have to change our minds about our sin, which takes us to our third point. Our third point is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, is that Jesus came to set us free from darkness. Jesus came to set us free from darkness. I could have said the word deception there. The verse reads like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Now, he actually physically did this one. Unlike the other two, there's no prison break. What do you mean the spiritual facade? It's more metaphorical. This one also has a metaphorical, metaphorical application in our lives and to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to declare the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. See, here's the thing with sin, is that sin keeps us in darkness. The, the metaphor of light and darkness in the Bible is rich. And what Jesus came to do, you don't know what God's like? He came to reveal God to you. He is light. And he, light shines then into the darkness. And what does John say? John says that, that men didn't receive him because they loved their sin, not because they loved dark. It's like, oh, it's just really dark in here. I like the darkness. I'm like, I like my sin, and so I reject Jesus because he's the light, and the light shines in the darkness. He came to set you free from the darkness, the lies that you believe. See, many of us believe lies. Sin always promises what only Jesus can deliver. We believe lies that then direct our lives. And so think about what all of them can be. And in this room with this many people, there are thousands, if not millions, of lies that are being believed that impact our lives, the decisions that we make and the direction that we head and the way that we relate with Jesus and the things that hinder us from relating with Jesus. So just think about some of the lies that are out there. What is it that gets promised to us that, that we think is going to deliver something that you want satisfaction out of? And whether it's food or sex or clothes or achievement or whatever it could be, what does the Bible say? Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight is a satisfaction terminology. And he'll give you the desires. He's going to give you the very thing that you want. It doesn't mean you use God like a genie. And I really want a new car. So I'm going to delight myself in Jesus until he gives it to me. No, that's prosperity gospel. See, Jesus didn't come to set you free from the circumstances of life. He came to deal with the sin that's in your heart. And then it deals with the outward stuff in your life as a result. So what are some, what are some of the other ones? See, the Bible will counter all the stuff that you could do possibly. Like, think about whatever your thing is. I'm not going to probably list everything. Money is a huge one. Think about money. Why is it that we oftentimes quote the second half of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, but we forget the first part? Let me read you the whole verse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For how does this have anything to do with that? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Money will. You think it's always going to be there for you? You think that's your security? I will never leave you. Why do people always just quote, I will never leave you or forsake you and forget the money part? Talk about all the things that we go after. Who's going to be satisfied, the Bible says? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Think about some of you in, this, in a room this size, some of you in here, and we don't just have to talk about the holiday blues, some of you in here have thought about taking your own life. What kind of lies do you have to believe to get to that point? This world would be better without me. I'll show them, whoever them are, 
you don't realize that you've got a God who's coming after you. He loves you. This is, you are his child with whom he's well pleased. And you go, no, 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 you don't know what I've done. Oh, no. Do you remember? It's, be, it's before Jesus did anything. So how do you get set free from that darkness? How do you, you just got to find the right Bible verse that counters your sin? No, he was, you were set free at the cross of Christ. Because you know what happened at that point? Jesus had lived a life you couldn't live. All the temptations you were faced with, he was faced with those temptations. And he didn't succumb to them. The people pleasing, the possessions, the proving who he is. I don't have to prove myself. I am. That's why he can get up and clean the disciples' feet, knowing who he was and where he came from. He got up and washed the disciples' feet. Not caught by the pretenses of life, not trapped by the sin. He then goes to the cross and takes on the wrath of his father. Why? For your sin. He was taking on your penalty. He was dying the death that you deserve to die. So then the Christmas story is really just a pointer, just so you know. It's just a preface. It's like the introduction. And it points us to the Easter story. And the Easter story, the tomb is empty. You know when that stone got rolled away from that tomb? Jesus had victory over death, victory over sin. And it was like he was unlocking the prison door from whatever holds you captive. But you have to walk through the door. And that requires faith. I don't know what you're seeking this Christmas, but I know that one of the things Jesus is seeking for you is your freedom. And when you're not free in Christ, you're missing the very mission that God had for your life. If you are free in Christ, then, then, then what are you doing for the poor, the poor in spirit? Because he came to proclaim good news to the poor. What are you doing so that other people can experience the freedom that you're experiencing to live on mission with him because he invites you into the mission with him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be free. Thank you that we can have real freedom in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for my friends and acquaintances and people that I've never even met before that are in this room right now. And maybe somebody who's watching online that might be trapped, living in the pretenses of life, living in an image. It's not, they know they're not even being themselves, but they feel trapped to be who somebody else wants them to be. God, I pray that you would give them the freedom to walk out of that today, to deal with their hearts, to ask themselves the question, why? Why do I feel I have to hide behind in whatever it is for them? And Father, I pray for those who might need a relationship with your son Jesus, that this would be the very moment that they, they recognize that your son Jesus died on the cross, not because of his own sin, but because of theirs. And they would ask your son Jesus to be their savior. And Father, I pray, I pray for those of us here that maybe feel like we're not even allowed to sin because we're Christians. You'd allow us to be honest with you in these moments, that you'd be honest with us. You'd say, well, even if they're hard words to hear, that you'd say words to our hearts in this moment. I pray for some that are in darkness, that you'd speak truth, speak light into their life. Let your son Jesus shine into their life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.